This is the Make America Grape Again podcast, produced and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. In this podcast, we explore wines from all 50 states in the United States of America. Before we begin this episode, I want to comment that I am sorry about the jumpy audio quality. Audacity kept freezing up while recording this. I managed to salvage as much of the audio as I could. So bear with me, I'm sorry. Future episodes will be recorded using a different audio program. This is one of a few episodes who got affected while we were batch recording. Those responsible for this issue have been sacked. Now, onward. Welcome to the Make America Grape Again podcast. I'm your main host, Cody. And I'm not. Today is New Mexico, so we're going to enter in the wild, wild west. Now, New Mexico has actually uh, the longest history of wine production in general out of any state, uh, older even than California. And that, of course, stands to, like California, those missions, uh, specifically Franciscans, first and later Jesuits. The very first acreage was planted around 1629 from vines actually smuggled out of Mexico. Uh, and they were planted by Fray Garcia de Zuninga, a Franciscan, and Antonio de Artega, who was a Capuchin monk. And those vines were planted at, at Puro Pueblo, which is just south of modern-day Sacro, New Mexico, which is about an hour-ish from where these vines were, uh, for this wine, were today. Uh, they were probably mission vines, um, also known as Luzon Prieta. Uh, and it's actually a varietal that's still grown in New Mexico today. Commercial wine in New Mexico actually dates back at least to the 1880s. Well, before that, for sure, because the editor of the Socorro Bulletin in 1880 predicted that, uh, quote, We see in the present attention given to grape culture an important and growing industry, which in a few years will assume proportions of no ordinary nature. Uh, the problem is, like a... Uh, everywhere in the U.S. Prohibition happened as a start, but interestingly enough, it was not prohibition that did in the industry in New Mexico uh, like it did in Arizona. Basically, what happened was in the 1920s and 30s, there was a lot of flooding that occurred along the Rio Grande, specifically in 1926, and it basically tore out a whole bunch of vineyards that were growing all along the Rio Grande River, all the way from Brennanillo to El Paso. Uh, and then a lot of that acreage was further destroyed in 1943, when more or less the rest of the vines got torn out by the river. It kind of started to restart in 1977 in Dixon, New Mexico, which is in the northern part, and they were growing a lot of French-American hybrid varietals. And this 1984 is when Deming started to emerge as a wine industry, which is down south uh, St. Clair Winery and uh, Luna Rosa Vineyard are the two biggest ones out of there, which for a while, a lot of grapes in Arizona for Arizona-made wines were being sourced from. Uh, that's largely fallen by the wayside. But there are three sub-AVAs and AVAs in New Mexico. There's the Masil Valley AVA, which is uh, near uh, Las Cruces and actually extends into northern Texas. There's the Middle Rio Grande Valley AVA and then the Membres Valley AVA, which is uh, near Deming. So there's a total uh, planted acreage of roughly 1,200 acres. So just over Arizona's current acreage right now. 
If I had to guess, uh, this if it is coming from an Aviang, some of this fruit may be coming from uh, the middle Rio Grande Aviang, which is encompassing 278,400 acres, which is in a land in a narrow strip along the Rio Grande Valley, ranging basically from Santa Fe to just south of Albuquerque. Actually, no, I suspect that this is not where it's from because that doesn't sound like Pinot country at all. 4,000 to 6,500 feet. So uh, I know this wine is from southern New Mexico, and Santa Fe and Albuquerque are both not in southern New Mexico, so we're going to disregard and probably delete that whole section. One of the southern AVAs, probably Mesilla, because I know our north Mesilla extends. But this could also be coming from their 30 acres it's planted at. Actually, no, that wouldn't be it either, because that's north of Albuquerque. So this is going to be definitely coming from, sorry for this, guys. We're, we're also working on the research as we do this. So the Gray Vineyard is actually the vineyard down south near Elephant Butte and Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. And that was actually a vineyard I visited. I remember just driving around trying to visit the spaceport near TRC. And, and so I just drove north and then suddenly there was this vineyard. And I popped in and they're like, yeah, we don't have a tasting room here. How did you find us? And I was like, I was just driving around. It's like, yeah, we don't have anything for you here. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> so this particular wine is, is the 2015 Barrel Select Gruet Pinot Noir. Laurent Gruet was the winemaker. Apparently. And he's been producing outstanding sparkling and spill wines in New Mexico for over 25 years. Uh, our 2015 Barrel Select Pinot Noir, chosen from just three outstanding barrels, illustrates the perfect marriage of wine and oak. So, for those who aren't aware, there's a direct correlation between uh, barrels and cases. So, each barrel can produce about 25 cases of wine, give or take. So, what we're looking at is a wine production for this particular bottle that is about... Um, 75. About 75 cases. And I will say that this has convinced me that good Pinot exists outside of Burgundy, which is a shock. Uh, for those of you listening for a while, they n you all know that uh, Pinot and I don't get along too well. And I was considering the Elk Cove uh, Rosé an outlier because, oh, it's a Rosé, and Rosé is invariably good. Well, not invariably, but anyway. It's light in color, which is what you expect from a Pinot. The reason why dark Pinot exists, California labeling laws, uh, where you can actually blend in 25% of another varietal into something and still call it your main varietal. So what a lot of people are doing in uh, coastal California are blending in 25% Syrah or 25% of some Bordeaux varietal or 20% Ruby Cabernet uh, to get that dark, almost black Pinot, which is not something that exists in the natural order of the cosmos. It is an abomination. I just, I can't get over how much this is blowing my mind that it's a Pinot that I haven't been repulsed by. It's, it's fantastic. Sitting in the tasting room at Gruet a couple of weeks ago when I picked up this bottle, I tasted their just plain old everyday Pinot after tasting their sparkling pinots. On reserve, Pinot Noir was no good. I, I mean, it wasn't, it was a Pinot, I didn't like it, didn't do anything to change my mind about the grape. So the guy behind the bar says, here, try this. And he pours me this wine. And my first, 
the first sentence that came out of my mouth after tasting it was, fuck, that's good. And that's the first time I've ever uttered those words in reference to Pinot. Is, to me, very reminiscent of a good Burgundy Pinot. Something that's state-grown that you would pay probably 60 or more dollars for if you were going to hunt this down in Burgundy. I've never tasted some of the, like, super high-end Pinots like Gavray Chambertin or the like, because that's out of my budget. But I imagine that, that they're like this in a lot of ways. I would imagine so. Because this is the best damn Pinot I have ever tasted, I think. And it's still super young. It's 2015. It's only been in bottle for a few months, most likely. I wonder if they ship. They might. You should find out. Actually, that could be a fun June road trip. It could be. We're going to put a pin in that. Come back to it later. I get lots of uh, rich, savory cherry notes, raspberry, lots of purple flowers like lavender. Not darker purple flowers like violets or lilac. Also rhubarb, which is really fun and interesting. I've got that sort of earthiness that I get in a lot of Pinot that comes from Burgundy. There you <laughs> go. So, and then mushrooms also. And yeah, it's got all these characters on the nose. It also tastes a lot like a Burgundy. And it's got this, this really fun character that's like, mm-hmm. you know, how you feel when you... Rub. A velvet Elvis? Yeah, or a like velvet Jesus? A velvet, a velvet covered Jesus or a velvet covered Elvis. That, that sort of softness. That's how it feels on the inside of your mouth, on the palate, on the cheeks. Uh, it's just got that soft thing. Like you want to just like nuzzle it against your face and just like curl up with it. Just a little bit of tannins there. Not much, but you don't really age a Pinot because of tannins. You just age it because you do, really. And this, I think, is a Pinot that you could sell her for a few years. Certainly. Well done, Gruet. I'm very impressed because I, I didn't think that a well-done American Pinot was a thing that existed. Incredibly impressed with the quality of the product at Gruet. And I'm not a sparkling wine fan, really at all. There are a couple of exceptions that prove that role, but... I walked into it thinking, I'm not really going to love anything that's here, but I'm going to do it. And it was a fantastic experience. And the wine was all pretty much spot on. There were a couple of the still wines I didn't love, but all of the sparkling wine I tasted was just fantastic. We will probably be one of those sparkling wines in a later uh, podcast in this series. We haven't reviewed any sparkling wines yet, but... uh... The fun thing also about Gruet is that it is incredibly easy to find at the store for fairly cheap. It's in every grocery store here. It's in Total Wine. Um, You won't find this particular bottle there, but you'll find some of their world-class sparkling wines there. Yeah, they produce a good value product that's, you know, not to be ignored. And the interesting thing is that New Mexico has this tradition of sparkling wine. Arizona doesn't, or I should say didn't until recently. That's starting to change. But the oldest sparkling wine in Arizona was Sedenal Sparkling Concord at Granite Creek Winery uh, in Chino Valley. There's sparkling wine being made in most of Arizona 
wine regions here and there. My favorite was probably the Method Campenois uh, from Todd Bostock, which was can-fermented, which was actually really awesome, and I wish I had a can for this podcast, but we drank it all. So um, the point of it is that uh, in Arizona, there are only six or seven sparkling wines. Gruet alone has a six or seven in their tasting room. And there are other New Mexican sparkling wines, I think. Or maybe they are the only producers. I really don't know. Um, I don't know that much about New Mexico wine, and they're right next door. We, we should road trip. Absolutely. To our June when it's fucking 110 degrees outside road trip. Cheers. Make America grape again. Fuck, that's good, Pinot. This was an episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast, sponsored, produced, and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. You can reach us at makeamericagrapepodcast at gmail.com, on Instagram at at theazwinemonk, or on Twitter at cvburkett. Be sure to also check out our website, makeamericagrapeagainpodcast.com. I'm Gary. You can find me on Instagram at greaterthanwines on Facebook at facebook.com slash greaterthanwines and by email at greaterthanwines at gmail.com. <laughs>